welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. Uh, I am joined by James Montague. I hope I pronounced that right, James. Yeah, you perfect first. I mean, nobody ever pronounces my name correctly apart from that. You're the first one, so thanks. <laughs> so, so yeah, twice winner of the Football Book of the Year award. So for me, it was getting someone like yourself on was was brilliant. Obviously, I'm a, a big football fan and, and love reading. So uh, once I picked up your your most recent book, Among the Ultras, one three one two, I thought I really really want to get him on. Uh, unfortunately, due to this pandemic, we're we're doing it over over Skype, but hopefully the quality. Uh, it's still good enough and we get some some good stories out of it yeah it's uh i mean it's, I'm, I'm sitting in a in a in my mum and dad's house in Lowestoft at the moment i mean we live in belgrade me and my family so which is quite useful for researching 1312 you know the balkans is such an important part of the ultra story uh but yeah we're all kind of like separated our cat's still in belgrade me and my daughter in essex my partner's in istanbul so yeah first week down feeling all right but you know I can, I can imagine it's getting quite boring after a while so luckily the ps4 has just been delivered so you know before amazon shuts down so I, at least we'll have that until the electricity runs out it must be quite difficult though being away from the family and, and just before we come on air there you were telling us that you are, you are moving to istanbul and uh, it must be such an uncertain time for you i mean i know it is for everyone but if you've got these plans it all seem up in the air at the moment james it can't it, i mean it is but i mean there's also i mean we with kind of nature of my work, I mean, I travel around a lot, um, usually to pretty intense places. I mean, especially for one, three, one, two, I mean, Argentina, Ukraine, Indonesia, places like that. So, and my partner's a foreign correspondent as well. So we're kind of used to a certain amount of not, not, not kind of apocalyptic scenarios, but certainly like, you know, there's, we're used to being away. Oh, great, in <laughs> totally. So I just, just let's go back to the start, James. So I said at the start there that you're an award-winning journalist and I believe that your your first book was uh, When Friday Comes, is that correct? Or yeah. Back, back yeah. in 2008. So yeah, give us a bit of background in yourself and why you get into writing and, and why football uh, has probably been the main focus of that so far. Well, I, I was, I wanted to be a journalist really from, uh, you know, for, after when I finished university, I wanted to, to be a journalist and I was really obsessed with reading George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia and I think the mixture of that having kind of a political education so I was really interested in kind of political journalism or, or doing something in politics um reading George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia which is essentially him going and fighting in the civil war Spanish civil war on the side of the republic yeah. um to get the story I mean this is a guy who really lived the stories that he wrote about and, and it was a mixture of that and kind of an obsession with football from a young age that when I ended up moving to the Middle East, it was like my first ever job in journalism, which was for like, it was for Time Out magazine. So it was like shopping and nightlife. Was there anything yeah. to do with football politics? Sure. When I was out there, I just couldn't stop seeing these stories in the Middle East where you, where football and politics and football, you know, they all, they all came together. And to me, it was just a wonderful mirror on society. I thought well, you could really explain Yemen or Israel or um, Iraq or what's going on in the uh, kind of sectarian dimensions in Bahrain, you know, through football. And yeah. so I went, travelled around whilst I was working there, and it was quite quite easy to move around then because you had low-cost airlines, it was cheap, and you could still go to Syria. I mean, um, Israel was a bit harder to get into, but you could get in via Jordan. And so, yeah, I ended up writing this kind of collection of stories about my journey across the Middle East. And ever since then, it was, yeah, I, I kind of, Kind of fell in love with the whole idea of writing books, and I've kind of dedicated that 
dedicate myself to doing that whilst at the same time, you know, I still do journalism, still do long reads and videos and stuff. But yeah, the, the last one just came out. Um, I don't know if I'm going to write another one like that because it's quite intense. They've all been quite intense in terms of travel and, and, and the experience that you have. But yeah, it's been, it's, it's four now in like 12 years. So, um, and not there, really, there must be, there must be a lot of work like that, that James, yeah. in terms of, sorry to, to jump in there, I mean, in, in terms of, you know, you, you're saying that you're, you've been in the Middle East, which I can imagine is, is quite a, uh, an interesting but also challenging place to go from someone uh, from Britain at the best of times. So when you, it seems like you've really been putting yourself in the mix of it with the diehard football fans and uh, I can't imagine that it's always been smooth sailing. Yeah, well, it, in a way, I mean, I, I seen that as well when I first went to the Middle East. I mean, it was 2004. So the Iraq war had taken place and, and the, or the initial phase of it, the second Gulf War had taken place. And so, you know, the, the whole place was, was falling to pieces. Um, Al-Qaeda was growing in strength around the region. You know, you thought that actually, you know, this is the worst time for an English journalist to turn up. I mean, you, you're going to be hated. But what I discovered was football was this, just this magic door into, into Middle Eastern culture. I mean, Middle Eastern culture is just, I mean, it's almost a ridiculous term because it's such a diverse place. Uh, but in terms of everywhere that I went in the Middle East, football was was honestly it was like this disarming medicine almost that you would you'd you'd mention it and whatever they would assume you were as a kind of fairly tall white English journalist walking around, football was this. It just brought everybody down to a kind of common denominator that everybody was really happy to talk about, and so. You know, there's no, there's, there's a chapter where I go to Lebanon and I go and meet. There's a football team there uh, called Al Ahed, which is the the club of Hezbollah. Effectively, the club of Hezbollah. They deny there's official links, but I mean, it's effectively, the, you know, uh, the club of Hezbollah. And uh, you know, there's no way you're getting you're getting access to that if it's not for a football story. So you can explain Hezbollah's role in, um, you know, after the civil war and in the current political uh, kind of problems they've got in Lebanon through <laughs> through Hezbollah and through this football club. And so, yeah, it was it was weird. Like, yes, on the one hand, you know, it didn't seem on the, on the, that I would be the kind of person that would be accepted. But on the other hand, football, you know, gave us something that we, we could all agree with. And so I found it was just, yeah, it was this really interesting way into to explaining things. And I suppose it is, it's an old cliche, but they do say football is like a universal language, isn't it? So if, if you're not going there and wanting to talk to them about politics and, and maybe write uh, articles on things that could potentially paint them in a, a dirtier light or a bad light, then I suppose that you're, you're going to be welcome to a certain degree. I think I think that was that was the case. I mean, in fact, the genesis of 1312 kind of came from one of my trips to Israel or Genesis. I mean, the first time when I started thinking about kind of global ultra culture as something that I'd really want to document if I could get inside and, and get some access was was when I went to Jerusalem to see La Familia play. And La Familia is like the ultras group of Beitar Jerusalem. And they're notorious for being extremely ultra nationalistic, very racist, very anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, protested whenever there was, a, there was a possibility that an Arab might play for the football team. But, you know, I went and met these guys and these aren't, you know, these aren't, you know, these, these are quite a tough bunch of guys, you know. And uh, as soon as they found out I was a West Ham fan, they started singing West Ham Till I Die, which is the only English they knew from the <laughs> okay. street hooligans. You know, so, um, it, yeah. so it's this, yeah, it's, it's weird that there is this kind of universal language. And, you know, I was very lucky to be able to, you know, talk to people in, in a way which, you know, a lot of my colleagues who are foreign correspondents in the Middle East, and like you said, cover things in a very, you know, conventional manner. Um, we found it much harder, I think, 
And so in that respect, and so I think I've got a very, very close to a very kind of underreported, underdocumented way of kind of trying to try and speak to people. Then it was, it was. I mean, I have region and certain countries that are really close to my heart. So I spent a long, long time part of my life there. So you know, it's a, it's a region that's really fascinating. I mean, the World Cup's coming up in, in as long as we survive this pandemic. I mean, the World Cup is coming up in 2020, 2022 and um, and it's that's I'm actually quite excited about that because although there's a lot of criticism of Qatar, and I've been very critical of Qatar. You know, the the Middle East's first World Cup is still something that I've I think would be quite quite a special thing. It's interesting you touch on that, James, because I, I suppose you know in in the Western media. The, the majority of the press and is is very negative about Qatar, mm. uh, obviously hosting the World Cup. What's what's your take on that? Because I suppose I, I've only really read the horror stories that are you know people are are working in terrible conditions and they're falling off building sites and people are dying building these stadiums and nobody's going to be able to travel. But from someone that's lived in that side of the world and maybe looks at it in a different uh, point of view, what what's your take on that? Well. I mean, it's 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 quite a complicated one. I mean, the first time I went to Qatar to report on uh, what was going on there was in two thousand and four. So I've spent I've gone probably to Qatar more than any single country. Spent time, a lot of time there. I mean, I've just been there for Bleacher Report before Christmas, uh, going to the Club World Cup and kind of taking the temperature of the place uh, during its first major kind of tour, international tournament that it's hosting, and. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, obviously, you absolutely flabbergasted. They won the bid. But having lived in the Gulf, so I was actually, I spent three years living in Dubai. And the Gulf was was obsessed with building kind of a state, like building its reputation internationally by investing in and buying kind of prized sporting assets, tournaments or hosting tournaments. And so they went for the, I mean, the Qatar went for the Olympics. There was talk of uh, Liverpool FC was almost bought by uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the, the kind of ruler of, of Dubai. You know, so th- this was something that was, they'd been trying, they'd been trying. They kind of failed in many respects to do it. Uh, but then, that you know, and when they won it, I was absolutely, I was, I was kind of, the world was shocked. I mean, I could see how they had been trying to do it. But the fact they did do it was still still quite amazing. And what was interesting was immediately they had this huge spotlight on them, um, which brought out all the extremely negative aspects, which people like me and other people who've been covering the Gulf have been talking about for years that no one really cared about until the World Cup came into town, which was kafala and the system that exists in the Middle East, especially in the Gulf states, which basically ties an employee to to their employer and is just ripe for abuse. It's kind of a form of indentured slavery. So those issues, worker rights, deaths on building sites, working in extreme heat, all this kind of stuff was very, very, very real. Um, the issue that I've had with Qatar, and I've been somebody who's held their bid feet to the fire in all my writing and all my books, I mean, in the Billionaires Club, I even track a worker from Bangladesh um, to Qatar, to the to the World Cup sites, and, and kind of chart all the exploitation that takes place along the way. I mean, not just in Qatar, I mean, in all the way. People are being exploited in uh, Bangladesh, on the, all, of, all along on the path that, that this takes place. And so, for me, the, the fact is they've had to be they're forced to reform their system, um, which exist in Dubai, exist in the UAE, exist in Saudi Arabia, um, where there's very little reform going on, but they've been forced to reform because of the World Cup, because it brought this huge amount of scrutiny. 
So in that respect, I've, I've actually, I think it's actually probably quite, it might be a quite positive thing that has taken place. Um, and if that is the reform legacy, but let's make, I'm under no illusion that's something that um, they've willingly arrived to. I mean, they've, they've literally been dragged to that position. Um, but it's, what's really interesting is that before for 2010, Qatar really had a reputation as a much more liberal place than, say, the UAE, which is obviously owned, which owns Manchester City, uh, or the, the royal family of Abu Dhabi own uh, Manchester City. Uh, it's a place with very little democracy, um, you know, no freedom of speech effectively um, in the UAE. It's very, very difficult. Um, very strict laws there. Qatar was always seen as a bit more, you know, they said they wanted to have constitutional monarchy. Um, they in, in, introduced Al Jazeera, which is very critical of other other countries around the Gulf, not Qatar, interestingly. Um, and yeah, there, there was there was a much it got rid of censorship. I mean, it was just it was much more um, relaxed kind of place. And then over the years, once it opened this kind of kind of Pandora's box, when it won the bid, it's kind of seen its reputation internationally trashed. And um, I, I think now the World Cup will go ahead there. Um, the worker rights issues was, were, were very, very real, but I feel that um, it probably would have, it would have taken something like the World Cup to bring the shame of the kafala system, which I think is one of the great shames of 21st century capitalism, uh, to a wider audience. And if anything can be done to alleviate the suffering of millions and millions of workers, uh, men and women in, in the Middle East who have been ruined by the system, and if the World Cup can play any role in that, then I think that is an incredible legacy, even if it's an accidental legacy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting that you, you touch on that and that they've actually been forced at this point, because I wonder if, you know, obviously, if, if the World Cup wasn't coming there, that these things would never never have progressed the way that they have. And the, the spotlight is now very much on Qatar, isn't it? You know, to, to deliver and deliver a, a good event. And I suppose they will want the world to come to their country. You know, it's, it's the World Cup. They want to showcase what they're good at. And if, if they're going there and people are seeing breaches of human rights and they're seeing terrible working conditions for, for men and women, then they're not only not going to go back there, but they're going to go away and they're going to write about this and tell people. And I think there's probably parallels, not in uh, such an extreme case, but parallels to Russia hosting the World Cup uh, a couple of years ago as well, because the, the press around that was very negative. And I suppose uh, there, there was a lot of things that we, we heard in the the British media, anyway, that they were doing to crack down on football hooliganism uh, and, and to make Russia a more welcoming country. But it certainly seemed that they they done okay. You know, they they actually came out of it looking reasonably okay. I mean, it was the Russia World Cup when I was there. It was, it was you know, I mean, it was great. I mean, I live in the Balkans. Uh, my family from Poland, so we we're very comfortable in the Slavic speaking world, you know, um, or Slavic language speaking world, I should say. And so. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was it was a great World Cup. I mean, we shouldn't look past the fact that both Qatar and Russia were f deeply flawed places, understandable places, because if we knew anything about um, Seb Blatter and how he had wanted to kind of spread football uh, away from its power centres in Europe and uh, kind of spread tournaments and to kind of he loved this legacy idea of you know, bringing peace to the Middle East or bringing football to Africa for the first time, you know, um, he in terms of the World Cup when it came to uh, South Africa. Uh, you know, so the idea that Russia would get its first World Cup and Qatar would get its first World Cup, you know, you can, you can kind of see where, like, where he was going with that. But they were both deeply flawed. I mean, Russia almost certainly, uh, I mean, almost every country did, was 
utilizing its kind of secret deep secret surveillance state to you know make sure that they won they won that bid you know um putin's favorite oligarchs were deployed to lobby and you know cajole and perhaps even invest in some projects that would help make that happen uh qatar played that exact same game um russia's issue i think i mean you know i think it was deeply problematic having them host the tournament after what happened in ukraine um and essentially invading the east of the country and annexing crimea something that hasn't happened so flagrantly since the end of the second world war um and you know you have mh17 yeah these are you know this is a this is this is an honor to host the world cup and and when you look at kind of the moral um issues surrounding russia you know i think it was very problematic that it got help there and i think it's the same with qatar i think you make exactly the same uh, case but from an economic and human rights uh, point of view um so yeah both of them um both of them were were very flawed but they what i would say i mean i was i was at the club world cup in december and it was kind of a look at how i mean what, what doha would look like i mean it's a very compact it'll be a very compact world cup i mean there's a there's a new metro system it's very cheap very good yeah, and gets around all the stadiums um there's no there won't be any kind of public boozing which people would attract to football which is really everybody's kind of very up in arms about that especially in the uk but having lived in the middle east i mean it's just not a cultural thing to drink i mean you know, it's it's not that people aren't, you know, don't want to have a good time. They do. I mean, like, I don't know, if I went to Egypt, for instance, everybody was smoking hash. Just, they just found a different poison. They just not, they just don't have a culture of drinking booze, you know. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean they can't have a good time. I mean, you should have seen the Tunisian uh, ultras when they turned up at restaurants. It's amazing. I mean, they're <laughs> having the best time of anyone. And they, they, had these little, they had this little park on the outskirts of the city a long way away where you could get a beer for like five euros, which was pretty much as good as you're going to find in the middle east uh or certainly in the gulf so there will be there will be i'd say seeing how it how it's going to be you know it is going to be a very gulf gleaming world cup very compact i've got no doubt they're gonna they'll pull it off and it'll be a great tournament people will go and people will be you know it, it's 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 kind of like going to a football tournament on the moon you know, you feel like it's totally alien to you. Like it, 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 a lot of people find it's very alien, but I find it very also parts of the Islamic culture extremely very beautiful. I lived when I lived in the Middle East. I lived next to, to a mosque, and it woke me up at five a.m. every morning. And I realised when I left, I kept waking up at five o'clock in the morning anyway because I couldn't sleep unless I heard the call to prayer at five a.m. Things like that, um, yeah. like desert light. It's, I mean, it's incredibly beautiful you know in, intriguing place um but yeah i think they will they will put it off but you know as ever with all these things it's whether the problems which have been brought up and whether they're going to be whether they mean it whether these things are going to be solved or not and whether they're just going to go back to normal afterwards and that's that's what legacy is all about and so having gone there and seen the club world cup which went off pretty okay i mean it's only four teams rather than the 32 that are going to turn up you know, I think it'll. I think people probably enjoy it if they've got enough room, which is which is going to be the, the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Um, if they've got enough room for it, then then I think it'll be okay. And I suppose you, you touched on it there. It comes back to this drinking culture, isn't it? It's often ingrained, certainly in in British culture, but also across the football and world in, in Europe. You could have to say, and it's almost will that put people off, and will they not travel? But as you said, James, you know, it's, it's a spectacle and if these people are going to go there and enjoy themselves 
uh, with their, their colours from all over the world, then hopefully, hopefully it will be good and it will be good for football. But uh, the, as you said, there's, there's lots of question marks over it at the moment. Uh, yeah. You, you, you touched on, James, uh, just very briefly there, the, the Billionaires Club, which was a, a book that you, you came on to. But before that, I wanted to ask you a wee bit about 31-0, which I believe was your, your second book. Uh, but yeah. on the road with footballs outsiders so yeah how, how did that come about what was your, your thought process behind that and uh, I um, suppose just in general when you're, when you're planning out you know what's my next novel or my next uh, book going to be what, what's your thought process how do you go about planning because it seems like you, you jump, out, jump about a lot of different countries and you meet lots of different people so I mean for, for someone that's yeah. down to write a book they just want to put words on paper but you you're really getting into the, the life of it and getting that experience so you can proper document it well, yeah, of some, I, I guess maybe this is the danger of, of falling in love with, with that George Orwell novel, uh, novel, sorry, um, non-fiction book at a young age, is that, that I feel like I, if I, unless I'm there, I can't really write about it. Which is, yeah, you need to be in the trenches. So be a sign of my as a writer, uh, because not everybody has to be at everything they see to write about it. But, um, with, but you know, you, you'll soak that up and you'll take it in. You know, you're, you're obviously, if you're there, you've got that personal experience of it. So it's probably... It may not make it easier to put it on the paper, but you'll be able to get your feelings and your thoughts and your expression across a, a lot more personally, I would believe. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. It definitely, there's a, there's a lot that I leave a lot of myself in these for good and for bad. Um, but I mean, thirty one nil wasn't supposed to be my next book. Actually, what happened was when when uh, when Friday comes came out uh, because it's a really obscure topic. I mean, for, like you got to remember, like in two thousand and five, two thousand six, when I was pitching this. I mean. Football in the Middle East. I remember once it was like a joke in Private Eye about I think it was making I think it was making a joke at the Guardian's expense that they had a Middle Eastern football editor, and I was like, well, that, <laughs> okay. that's kind of that's kind of what I write about. And so because yeah. it seems so crazy to have somebody who's interested in football in the Middle East. Um, so it was really obscure. But the week it came out, um, Sheikh Mansour bought Manchester City, and suddenly, um, so, suddenly I you know was kind of inundated because people googling middle east football and could only find me so i ended up going on cnn to talk about it and off the back of that i started writing for cnn um and i thought you know this is this is the next book i should write the billionaires club about this new wave of owners that have come in from all around the world and you know change the shape of football and i couldn't find i couldn't find anybody i remember writing the pitch so the title was the same and couldn't find anybody who was interested um at the time and then it was kind of I went to watch Egypt Algeria a World Cup qualifier in Cairo um in when was it, it was 2009 for 2010 and it was just the most incredible story it was kind of the the last years of Hosni Mubarak's Egypt and this game was taking place there were riots and there's a lot of history involved and it was just um it ended up the last last second goal so that it had to go to a playoff in Sudan it was just all chaos, and I just thought, if I'd just been following the World Cup qualifiers, like you could just tell the story, you could just tell these amazing stories through that. And so that was the genesis of 31 0. And then I had it all planned. I was going to go to the first World Cup qualification match of the 2014 cycle, and it was supposed to be Montserrat against Curacao. No, Montserrat were playing Belize. And I was supposed to go to that. That was supposed to be the first game. And then, um, no, that, no, sorry, I'll take it back. I was going to Palestine versus Afghanistan. And that was supposed to be the first yeah, yeah. game. And then um, they moved the Montserrat game forward. So that was then the first game of the, of the World Cup. I was livid. 
Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then, so I, you know, I, then it kind of took a life of its own because you, once you're on that treadmill of World Cup qualification games and you, and you kind of planned out a little bit what some of the main countries are because you think, well, these might have interesting stories because of a political issue or something that's taking place there. For instance, Haiti was a big, it was just recovering from the earthquake. Um, and, you know, so it was a shattered, awful, I mean, the most despairing place I think I've ever, I've ever been to on my travels. It was really, okay. really in a bad way. Um, and then they had their first ever World Cup, they had their first World Cup game or first game at home since then. So, you know, you go there and, and so, yeah, it just took a life of its own. It just took me all over the world. Um, you know, and that, that I'm, you know, I'm very, very, very fond of that. But I could probably get asked more about that book than any, any other book, I think. Sure. And, and, and I suppose that the response to these books have, has been fantastic. As I mentioned earlier, you know, you're obviously vice winner Football Book of the Year award. And when you're setting out, is, is that something that you, you achieve? You think, I, I really want to get prestigious awards for this? Or is it just, you know, I want to go and enjoy this experience? hopefully get the book published and, and tell a story. I mean, I'd like not to be skint, so I'd probably <laughs> yeah, like sold a couple copies, to be honest. But um, uh, the, it, not really. I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't worked in an office for like 10 years. Um, I, I, you know, I live at home. I don't really hang around with many journalists. Uh, I'm not part of the, like, the London media network or scene. Like, I don't go to Premier League games. So... You know, none of it really affects me. I mean, I don't really, I don't really see any of it. You know, yeah. um, I just do my work. I send my stories when I write for the New York Times. You know, there's, there's, you, you never, you never really see anybody come up to you and say, "Oh, yeah, so I read that piece in the paper." Like you might do if you're living back in the UK. Yeah. So, so none of that really. Yeah, it doesn't. I feel like kind of working a complete vacuum where none of that none of that matters really. I suppose that's a good thing to a certain degree as well because you, you almost don't fall into that clique and I would imagine that if you're working with the same people in any walk of life every week you know you're, you're going to be influenced by them you're going to maybe take a bit of their style but you know you're out doing your own thing which which seems in this world very unique it's it's yeah I mean I'm lucky um I mean I'm lucky that I get to live in Belgrade and um you know and make it work with my family and stuff I mean like I said earlier my partner's a a, a foreign correspondent so so you know i mean i'm not even the best journalist in my house really so it's, um, <laughs> you know, she, she is you know and she's absolute force of nature and so she's the person who we have to work around you know as well so it's not just me kind of gallivanting around uh anymore which is probably a good thing because i was 40 last year and I don't, i'm not sure i could get keep getting away with it uh but yeah i mean it's it's i think it would be very different um if if i was living kind of it, it right in the middle of, of it all going off so yeah i quite like being a bit separate from it and um you know um, How, how's the dynamic in the house james do you, do you argue about who's who's the best writer or who's the best journalist well we don't well she writes mainly in dutch so thankfully we can't argue about that but she's when she writes in english she's a better writer than me so that I mean, that's just the <laughs> dutch art so Oh, yeah. No, I mean we do. We have to. We have to plan our stories, which is difficult for her because she'll get a breaking news story and that'll be it. And so um, we've had a couple of times. Well, yeah, a couple of times. What about my story? But mostly, it's actually worked out all right. I mean, this book was a lot of travel, like one three one two, and it was lots of intense experiences as well. So you know, the, at home it was very, and I had to spend a month away to write it. Like I've kind of squirreled away in this kind of little hut in the in the east of Serbia to write it and so obviously we have a daughter and and so we had to make 
plans for that and um but we 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 got through it and now she's taking this new job as turkey correspondent and so i'm going to take a bit more of a backseat role I, well i mean you can't get more backseat than you know being isolated in england with your daughter while yeah. she's started her job there so um yeah it, it, we've 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 kind of made it work and it's it's quite a, when you read those books i mean all of them i mean i would say each one of them in a way kind of i wouldn't say destroyed my life but i was certainly like relationships couldn't really survive that level of uh travel and intensity and so yeah that's a sacrifice that you probably often don't hear off from you know journalists you know i think everyone thinks that you, you're, you're just writing about things that are, that are in front of you but that to go away traveling for that period of time to lock yourself away for a month you know just to get your words down on paper it is things that people from the outside world the journalism probably don't realize goes on yeah, it's it's re- it's really it's a really big thing, and it's not that you know. I think within the scene, I think it's quite common. You know that you, I mean, sp- certainly you speak to my publisher or agent or people who have been in publishing. I mean, the amount of people who break up during a book writing is it's just it's huge. It's huge because it's a massive pressure, um, and you know you have to, you know, if you've got a family, you have to rely on the other person, and they've got needs, they've got wants, they've got jobs um and in, in some respects it's quite, it's quite a selfish act you know to do that to put somebody else through that but yeah. luckily i found somebody who or fell in love with somebody who kind of gets it but has also her own thing and it's kind of forced us to share the burden of all of this and so yeah i mean if, if it wasn't for her I, I don't know what i'd be doing yeah on, on that note just before moving on to talk about the current book i mean just in terms, of, I speak to a lot of musicians on this podcast, and and they often talk about how you know money spell out of the music industry because what's a uh, their work or their art as they would put it is is going online for free, and is, mm. is that a bit of a challenge for journalists as well? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, I really enjoy doing this, and I, I don't really uh, mind about the the accolades that I get if I win any awards, but obviously you don't want to be skint, and I suppose yeah. with the the new mediums in terms of uh, audio books and also. Uh, everyone's got Kindles and it's it's not as much people are picking up a, a hardback book and, and buying it from the shops. Is that more of a challenge in, in your work life? Well, in a, in a weird way, books have kind of held up really well because people still like books. People st- still like a tactile reading experience. And we, we set up a magazine a couple of years ago called Delayed Gratification, which is a quarterly journal, like a slow news, slow journalism publication. We were the first one to do it. And... Um, and it's and it's really held up. I mean, God knows what's going to happen in the next few months, but it's really held up. You know, I mean, we've been going. We we started about the same time as the blizzard, and you know, both of those kind of journals are kind of aiming for that same thing, which is like, okay, they put much more stuff for theirs online, but you know, people like to read things that are physically in their hands, make yeah. a beautiful thing, and people yeah. will buy it. And um, they're, they're you know, you, it's not a mass produced thing anymore, but it's enough. For, for a decent business and it's the same with journalism i mean i've i've never really written much for british media i mean i'm certainly not for, for the main newspapers i mean i did some stuff for the guardian back in the day um i wrote quite regularly for world soccer um but you know i've always looked internationally for for work and stuff so you know somewhere like new york times is thriving i mean i haven't done much for them recently because i've been working on this book and books you know if you also, if you're a columnist or if you're a, what's the word? If you're somebody, if you're somebody who writes from your desk a lot, right? There are a lot of people that can write from your desk, but there's only going to be like 
potentially one or two people who are going to be at a stadium in Hong Kong or, you know, uh, Jerusalem or whatever, looking at that story in that particular way. So in a way, that kind of model of having to be somewhere and seeing it and getting there. And I mean, the trick is always trying to get somebody to pay for you to go there, which was, which was, which has got easier as I've, you know, as I've done more work and have, you know, built a bit more of a kind of, yeah. kind of identity around that kind of journalism. And then, you know, so it, 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 that has got easier, but it's, it's interesting that in a world where, you know, journalism is really struggling, but, there is still there's still value in going and that's what I'd, i recommend to anybody who's starting out in journalism is they straight away get out of the uk straight away get out of the idea that you're going to cover a premier league team um in a kind of you know in a like that anyone will care about opinion you know you have to go out and find stories that you're there that you see that are absolutely utterly unique because that is the only currency really that's left in the market sure makes sense so so yeah m- moving on to uh, one three one two uh, among the ultras, it, uh, a journey with the world's most extreme fans. Uh, this really appealed to me, James, just because for anyone that listens to this podcast or anyone that knows me personally, I'm obviously a big football fan, similar to yourself. I, I've got a bit of a bug where I like to travel around and go to different countries, and it, it's almost a strange thing for me because people will say, "Oh, who was playing in that?" I recently went to Argentina as well uh, to watch a few games, and people when I came back, people were saying. What's the standard of football like? Was was there any players that we would know? Blah blah blah. And for me, I suppose similar to yourself, the, the appeal is almost watching the, the supporters and the fans and and how they would react to what's going on in the park, which to many people might seem strange. Uh, but for me, you know, it's, it's it's the culture and the community behind that that really drives football clubs. So when I when I seen your book was coming out, I thought, you know, I really really want to get my hands on it. Uh, I've got it now, but I've not started reading it. So yeah, so for the the listener. What's it about? Why did you uh, go down this route and, and tell us a bit about what we could look forward to if we were to pick it up? Well, 1312 Among the Ultras is kind of the story of how Ultras, which is kind of a type of organised fan group in a way, or fan culture, kind of emerges out of Italy in the late 1960s and spreads all across the world um, to the point where you now find Ultras in almost every country and every league on earth. Um, they have their roots in Italy, but there's there's a lot of um, influence that comes from Argentina and Brazil from around the 1940s, and this this now kind of all spreads around the world into this into this one very recognisable kind of concept of, of of a group with a hierarchical structure, capo who leads the chant at the front, uh, these climactic public displays, choreography, um, uh, often you know with pyrotechnics as well, and and people often connect them to hooligans of the English hooligan movement of the 1960s and 70s onwards. But actually, they're much more nuanced than that and much more political and much more anti-authority. And which is one of the reasons why I called it 1312, because everywhere that I went around the world, I would always see 1312 stenciled onto the uh, onto the football stadiums or graffiti onto the football stadiums and it means uh, it's a number code for the alphabet um, ACAB which means I'm sure your listeners will know uh, all cops are bastards and it, that to me really encapsulated what something about ultras which is although they might be very different all around the world they all absolutely hate authority and hate the police and that's a, that's kind of a universal outsider status that they cherish and so I wanted to tell that story about how not only how it spreads 
but also some of the really fascinating stories of individual groups in countries. So and there's a, you know, Eastern Europe has really adopted, really adapted after the fall of communism, this fan culture. And in many cases, it has a very right wing, ultra nationalistic vibe. Um, but there's a really interesting story in Ukraine where the ultras played a role in, in the Maidan revolution that swept President Yanukovych from power um, in 2014. The ultras of al in uh, Cairo, for instance, had a very similar role in Tahrir Square and getting rid of Hosni Mubarak. Um, the Gezi Park protest in Turkey, ultras played a key role there. Uh, if you go to the Balkans, uh, ultras often are you know, really connected to political groups and are patronised by politicians who want to use them um, to further their own political ends, organised crime, um, to get political activism in Germany, uh, left-wing political activism, right-wing political activism. Um, North Africa, where, you know, this probably the best ultra scene in the world right now in terms of pyro, in terms of kind of choreographies, in terms of numbers, you know, but the songs that get, you know, that Roger Casablanca's ultras groups kind of write and sing, then go on, they then become kind of soundtrack to uprisings and protests in, in the main town city squares. So this is more than just fan support. It's also, um, you know, it's also probably the biggest youth culture in the world that also gives an outlet for people wanting to push boundaries and wanting, wanting to, you know, affect societal change. And bearing in mind, it's almost impossible to get access to many ultra groups. And I thought that only after doing this for a few years that I could actually get the kind of access I'd want to do a book like this justice. Um, nobody knows anything about them. And, and all we know is the very cliched version of what they are. And I thought it was time to try and try and, tell just a part of, of the story about about this thing this thing that exists at every football match you watch on television yet you know they're kind of hiding in plain sight we don't know anything about i think that's a really interesting point to make you know as the, the ultra scene worldwide is probably one of the uh, the biggest youth move, movements that there is you know and for me it is very much uh, under documented in the press and i think when when you do read it certainly and I'm sure this is probably reflective across the world, but certainly when you read it uh, in, in the press here, it is the connotations of hooliganism and connotate like harking back to the dark days of the 80s. But people don't actually look at the, the underlying things that these ultra groups are doing, you know, where they're doing lots of different things to help causes in the community. I think you'll see that at the moment with the pandemic that we've seen. Uh, I know you documented them in your book, but the Atalanta fans in Bergamo, you know, they were donating thousands of euros last week to one of the local hospitals in Italy. To deal with the coronavirus exactly, outbreak, yeah. I suppose that's things that you, you don't really hear of, but in this book you've probably documented and you've probably seen on your travels as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, there's it's always interesting. There's a kind of code of honour amongst ultras, you know, when you know an op opponent opponent's capo dies, you know, they'll they'll have a whip round in the in the curve for money to give to them. There's a great there's a great um, example of how. Uh, I was talking to people in Italy about when Gabriella Sandri died, who was a famous Lazio ultra who was kind of shot by the police. And it created like, it's a real pivotal moment in how the power of the ultras kind of shifts and the control of the crackdown of the police around that time on, on what they're getting up to. But what was interesting is that you had protests, you even had like protests, maybe like left-wing curves as well as right-wing curves, in, you know, protesting the death of Gabriella Sandri. You know, you had, um, Livorno, you had, I mean, the, the Atlanta game had to be called off because of riots, because 
they were demanding that they because the fan was killed that all games should be put off that weekend as what happened when a police officer was um, killed a few months previously and one guy that I interviewed Pierre Luigi Spagnolo who's a very fascinating um, journalist former ultra now journalist who's just written a book in Italian was I'd that like you know that I can't say my, my Italian's very good but uh, I'm trying to say rebel you do stagly yeah that's it I mean it's I mean luckily I basically I sat down and spoke to him like three four hours in Milan and he was a fascinating guy uh, I wish I could read that book but <laughs> my Italian isn't that good either but <laughs> but he's he's you know he's a, a, a guy who in Italian has tried to write something probably better and and you know much more sympathetic um but you know he was saying that that you know you had these guys they would fight each other on the streets but when one of their own because the bond between ultras is more important than, than anything else you know even if you're if hated enemy uh there's there's a you know they were they were protesting against what happened to him even though they politically disagreed with each other and so there is a kind of solidarity um within ultras because of course they feel themselves as, as an a, a kind of oppressed scene so yeah you'd see this everywhere i mean you know when i was talking to people about the torcida in hydric split in croatia you know it's like you know, when we had floods, it was the ultras, the, the, the Torcida were there first. When there was an earthquake, when there's a fire, when there's natural disaster, you know, they're, they are a group of very well-organized men, and it is usually men, who can be deployed very quickly into these kind of scenarios. So you, you get all of these things, which, which never get uh, kind of promoted because, you know, and, and this is partly, I think, the ultras' fault as well. I mean, you know, it... it they're so anti-media and I had a couple of occasions, you know, it was very difficult for me to have got any access. And, and a lot of times I had to just drop countries that I'd want to do anything about because, you know, I mean, just couldn't get any access. Didn't want, they didn't want you around. And fair enough. I mean, it's up to them if they didn't want me to write about it. But at the same time, a lot of people then will, will complain about how the ultras are written about them. So I understand the mistrust of the press and of the media, but I can also see how the cycle of, not trusting the media, not letting them in, and then and then writing stories about you know the scene in a very cliched way. How that's a self perpetuating cycle in a way. Of course, so it, they're it, seeing that from the outside looking in, aren't they? And if you're not going yeah. to let them in, then how are you going to change this perception? Exactly, and it's it's. But you know, ultimately, I did get into to a lot of places, and um, I, and this was always on this was always on my mind. You know, I wanted to tell. I didn't want to shy away from very real issues i mean you know if, if there is ultras say they're not political but they're often extremely political and involved in lots of political things i mean the connection between uh, the far right uh, and a lot of ultra groups in eastern europe in particular and ultra nationalism in balkans i mean it's there it's it's you can't shy away from that you got you got to say that this is what it is um you know i mean a lot of the racism and a lot of the the other issues that come up are social issues societal issues that that are reflected you know, on the curve, it may be in a much more extreme, obvious, and and vocal way, but they are. Um, but and still, I think you touched on that there in the, in the Balkans, and also you know in, in, in Italy and and you know some of those Eastern European countries. It's almost as if that these youth movements see that as a a platform to air political views and almost be like a youth wing of certain uh, right wing leaning uh, political parties. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true, and and um, I mean certainly in in Ukraine when I was I was there, you know, one of the guys I met who's who's the leader of uh, one of the main ultra hooligan firms, 
Um, I mean, it's difficult when you're in the because obviously hooligans and firms and ultras are different, but they kind of bleed together in Eastern Europe. So, uh, but you know, one of them was a you know ultra, then a veteran of the war, fighting in the Azov Battalion, which is a kind of kind of has its roots in the far right in Ukraine. Um, and was now, or, you know, when we met, was then being kind of groomed for political office with the National Corps, which is a kind of, again, a, a part of the far-right ecosystem in, in Ukraine. So, you know, it, it was all it was all connected, and you had, to, you had to tell that story. But also, you had to tell the story about how these guys were the muscle that helped to probably save hundreds of lives in Maidan and made a kind of an alliance with pro-European liberal activists with these kind of far-right ultra-nationalists. Um, and to me, I mean, I know my publisher was a bit sketchy about, about this chapter because, you know, you're, you're writing about a very kind of dark world. But for me, that's what you have to write about what you saw. You know, this, this happened and you have to ask questions about why it happened and what's unique about Ukraine that made that happen. But it's, you know, it's to me, it's more interesting to write about it because it did happen. And you want to you want to tell the world as as it is and not how you want it to be. So, yeah, it 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 was um it was a really intense it was an intense period writing this this book. And I hope that I mean I've had really good feedback from it so far. Um, I just hope that I didn't fall into the trap of of writing about the scene in cliches. You know, because it's a scene that I you know that I love and I. You know, I, I see the power of good that it can have. I, you know, I also see that it's bad, and uh, in some respects, and you can see that there's elements to it that, are, that have got pro- problematic elements to it. Um, yeah. It's got both things, good and bad. And so, you know, I just hope that 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 comes out, and you know, I suppose, you know, I'll, I'll find out in a few months if I'm if I'm ever welcome <laughs> back anywhere or not. <laughs> and you, you touched on it there, uh, James. That you, you know, there was a few places on your list that you you had to curb or scrap because uh, you know you, you weren't able to get access to certain people. Just looking at the, the contents just now, you obviously went to South America, went to lots of different places across uh, Europe, Serbia, Greece, Sweden, Germany, Ukraine. How did you go about getting access to these people to find out a bit more about them and uh, essentially write about them? Was there? Was there times when you were out there that you thought, oh dear, I'm, I'm maybe in a sticky situation here? Or, or yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's one in particular. I mean, I, so my way of doing it was that, I mean, it was already 400 pages when I finished it. But my way of thinking was the acts, like, I will only write about the people who let me let me get in because otherwise it'd just be loads of chapters of me not getting to speak to people. So it'd be yeah. a boring book. There was only one chapter that I kept, well, actually it's part of a chapter that I kept about that which was when I went to Morocco and I had uh, I'd lined up to meet the ultras of Raja Casablanca, which have a fascinating story because um, post Arab Spring, there wasn't enough, there wasn't, uh, you know, the government didn't fall. Um, but there's been a lot of oppression since in Morocco and the, and the ultras have been making songs and TIFOs that try to kind of like show about the unhappiness that youth have towards the authorities and corruption and, um feelings of hopelessness very ex- existential kind of tifos in many respects and songs like really beautiful songs um there's one song in particular for bloody del Mooney, my country has wronged me which is like a <laughs> you hear it everywhere like people sing it it's like just a beautiful beautiful song that people sing when they're on protest and that came from the ultras and i went to morocco and i was going to the casablanca derby and 
we had it all set up and I, I kind of retell the story about how I arrived uh, to meet, you know, one of the, the head capo, this guy who just recently spent two years in prison because they put because uh, there'd been um, there'd been some kind of internal fight between some of the groups. A couple of people were killed, and he got the blame for it, even though he wasn't the person responsible. They they blamed him for it, but obviously because he's an important character as a capo as well, yeah. important figure. So he was um, yeah. So when I arrived, we it was really ta- like what I found through a friend, through a friend of a friend. Like I have a lot of contacts in North Africa in the North African scene. Eventually, you get to someone. Um, they all have to vouch for you. It's kind of an honor system because if you turn out to be a dickhead, then they get the blame for it and then they're out, you know. So so it's a very delicate process you've got to get to to get through these layers of almost layers of checks to make sure that you are who you are and you're not a police officer or undercover or secret service or whatever. And got to the game or one of the games, got there early and realized that there was another game on uh, before the derby, went there and straight away the police were took such an interest in me that as soon as like I'd got out of the game and they'd all seen that I'd been nabbed for the police, nobody wanted to talk to me. Oh, and so all, all uh, method of communication was ended. And so I never heard from them again. So it was, it's that tenuous. And I thought that's the one oh, time yeah. I could write about that and, and say, you know, that's, that's how difficult it is in this scene. Um, uh, but everywhere else. There's a time yeah. where there's pressure on you as well, where you think, you know, I've spent money coming here and, and I'm not going to get any content from it. Like, what's the publisher going to be thinking? Or is, yeah, is, is, I mean, there is does a, that pressure there, apply, or is there a bit of flexibility though? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's always. I mean, I had my list of. I mean, I ended up dropping a couple of chapters, adding a few chapters. Um, but I was, you know, I also something I learned from my journalism was like you you have a very specific idea of what a story would be, and you'd yeah. go, and if it didn't work out like that, then you'd be you'd be fucked off. Right, and you'd be like you failed somehow. Totally. But then what I discovered quite quickly was that often it's what fucked up that made a better story. And by this thing happening, you know, what it, I, I I quite like that chapter about or the section about North Africa because yeah, of course I'd love to have been with the you know with the Raj Casablanca guys in the uh, yeah. in the stadium and, and seen it and of course, but also it it gave a different kind of type of chapter in the book or the passage in the book that really highlighted how difficult it is and that it wasn't just the procession of me going and being introduced to these kind of really infamous people yeah so you know you kind of you know if it doesn't work out you kind of make the most of it you know and 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 often it's it's actually much better for it so um yeah it was I think it's really interesting you mentioned, you know, North Africa and you would say that's, that's where the best fan scene is in terms of numbers and colour and pyrotechnics because it's, that's probably one that's not documented as much as the others, you know, when you look at Germany or, or across to South America, Brazil and Argentina. And what, what is it that makes that more raw and more, more eccentric or more, you know, something that you, you would recommend that people go and see, I suppose? Because, I mean, I had a lot of experience, especially in Egypt. I mean, I spent on and off about seven years with the ultras of Al-Akhli, which is pretty much the biggest club in Africa. So yeah. over those years, and I write a lot about it in When Friday Comes, and over those years, um, you know, you got to see how the ultras movement kind of begins kind of with Raja Casablanca, but also um, a few years later, around 2005, the first kind of like European style ultras groups start kind of, kind of arrive or start to be started by, usually by people who've, had some experience of Italian football culture or watched it 
but involved in the kind of graffiti scene. And um, and in 2007, you have it in, in Egypt and, you know, it starts in Tunisia and Algeria. And so you've got this, I mean, there's already a very vibrant fan culture, but it, it, it's kind of like the local fan culture is then kind of mashed in with this like kind of ultras aesthetic and organization. And what I found, especially in uh, Morocco and especially in Egypt, was that, you know, when you have countries where, you know, effectively dictatorships or, you know, very kind of unfree places, that football stadiums, um, especially in North Africa, were this space where usually young men would go and would be able to criticise the government, would be able yeah. to criticise the club, would be able to kind of, kind of really express themselves in a way they can't really express themselves anywhere else in, in the country. And so that was one of the reasons why when I first met the Akhlawi in 2007, at the first ever uh, Cairo derby, there were only a few hundred. But within a couple of years, there were thousands and they were regularly, you know, flying ACAB banners and they were fighting the police on a week by week basis. They were almost impossible to control. And I think the authorities also underestimated how powerful a political space the football terrorist can be. And so out of that, the, this very organized culture uh, of kind of expression has developed. And so now and because it's it's much harder to control and it's obviously a far less sanitized experience in general going to those games than say in Europe, you know, it's created this kind of perfect storm of um, organization. I mean, you know, sometimes it can get a bit dangerous as well. I mean, it's not, it's not without its problems, but it's, you know, it's, um, you know, this perfect storm of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of organized young men um, being involved in expressing themselves in a very kind of ultra style. I mean, yeah. it's it's so powerful the fact that Egypt has outlawed ultras effectively. So, oh, really? Yeah. 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 What, what's the story there? What's the? Well, because I mean, again, from when Friday comes, I mentioned this in one three one two as well. I mean, the ultras of of Egypt essentially are the people who helped to win the revolution, Tahrir Square against against Hosni Mubarak, because yeah. one of the reasons I discover from. From Ukraine, from Egypt, from Morocco, from um, Turkey, is that when there's when the conditions are there and uh, ultras are called upon in acts to do, you know, involved in kind of anti-government acts, it's often these guys that have any experience fighting the police. No one else does, but because they're week in, week out, they're getting baton charged or tear gas. They kind of know how to deal with the police, or at least not intimidated by um, facing them. Whereas, like activists or religious figures are uh, so they often play this you know they do play a kind of very important role in these street protests and i found that in egypt and i was with these guys and, and all the way through the election of mohammed morsi the first elected democratically elected president um you know they were a they became a kind of a kind of heroes of the revolution and they're and they're they, their standing had never been higher I mean, before they were just the regime called them hooligans and now they were like no you're protectors of the revolution and then you have an incident where 72 uh al-Aqli fans die at port saeed in 2012 at a, a um a match which is essentially their deaths are kind of partly orchestrated by the local security chiefs certainly they 
they're found guilty later on of doing that, along with the ultras of the opposition team, as kind of payback for beating the police and beating kind of deep state in, in, in Egypt. And it's kind of the beginning of the end of the revolution after that. Morsi's taken from power, Sisi comes in, um, anybody who shows any dissent whatsoever is outlawed, uh, is arrested and put into, you know, Egypt's hor- horrendous prison complex. And um, eventually they get to the ultras and they, they outlaw them completely because they see them that much of a threat. So That's now, it's, you know, so now, yeah, it's, it's you, you, ultras. I mean, fans haven't really returned to the stadium since Port Said. So, I mean, Egyptian football fan culture is almost dead in that respect. But it, it was fascinating that they saw it as a, so much of a threat that they had to outlaw it. Yeah. And was there, is there a void that they've filled? Is, is there people that are, is the, is the stadiums in Egypt now, you know, maybe more family friendly? I know that's a bit of a cliche coming from know, that. It's, it's empty fans. They've tried to bring back some fans, like minimum numbers. They've got around it by holding big games in, say, a neutral venue like the UAE, where there's a lot of Egypt, Egyptians can go or travel there. But of course, you, you only get wealthy Egyptians to go to those games. Right, so, okay. you know, it's. Um, you know, they had to same without them to a certain degree as well. It's it's um it's a tragedy. On the on the contrary, you, you can maybe tell me that I'm wrong here, uh, James. But you you've obviously went to these places where the conditions are very extreme, and uh, they obviously wear their heart on their sleeve. They're they're involved massively in uh, politics across the country. And then uh, towards the end of your book, you go to the United States, and yeah. and from me from the outside looking in. It looks very, very plastic. It seems like you know these are, these guys are singing the national anthem, and they're, it just seems a bit forced. But I could be totally wrong in that because you've seen it firsthand. Yeah, I mean, to be, I, I thought that I, I, that's exactly what I thought when I was when I was turning up there because I thought, okay, the the final wave of of kind of ultra culture goes, or, or the, the the final wave up to this point is it goes to Asia, it goes to Indonesia, it goes to uh, America, where you build, you're building a, 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 what I thought was a football culture from scratch, but they're not building a football culture from scratch. I mean, I went to LAFC, which is a new football team. It's a new franchise. But what you get, what you realise when you get there is that LA has always been a soccer city because the Latin influence and the uh, immigrant influence from around the world, it's an immigrant city. You know, the, the amount of times people told me yeah, LA is a city of the future meant that People would always love football. People would always love soccer, but they just never really had a team. You know, MLS is a fairly new thing. So they never really had a team or something they could, could pour their love into. I mean, the Shivas they had for a little while, um, but that folded, and that was too narrowly focused on the kind of the Mexican American experience. Um, but yeah, when I went there, I was, I was I was I was blown away by it because one of the things that was really interesting is it's it's a very progressive fan culture. Um, like women do not feature if you go to a lot of these groups in Eastern Europe or Italy, you know, women really take a backseat role. I mean, it's a patriarchal, hierarchical um, kind of scene in many respects. And you go there and you see there are there are women in the capo cages, you know, leading the chance. You know, you had, you know, you you had the day before the week before they had a Mia Ham. Uh, kind of tifo and some, you know they had uh aoc banners and you know it was, they had like fuck ice t-shirts and there it, it, was, does, it does seem like what what i've seen online very recently is that the uh 
the American soccer fans, so to speak, that, that are part of these ultra groups are fairly political and fairly left leaning as well. Yeah, so and that's it. I mean, most of the thing, most of the politics I encountered in the scene were right or far right. Um, yeah. Apart from in Germany, apart from in uh, Sweden, and and especially in the US, where there is, you know, there is a strong progressive strain. I think that's partly because of the demographics of the people who watch, you know, MLS and get involved in it. But it was, you know, it was amazing to be there. I was there for for Pride Day. And it was the whole of the 3252, which is the name of the kind of the, the supporters organization, which has lots of ultras groups, as part, nine ultras groups part of it. There's, there's even one group called the 420 Originals, which is kind of a weed based ultras group. Right, yeah. fantastic. And, um, <laughs> where, and where the books are they? Are they in LA? Yeah, yeah. this is all, it's all uh, LA. So they've got a new stadium, Bank of California Stadium. And uh, yeah, it's in, right in the center of downtown LA. So great. It's, it's a great little stadium. And yeah, the three two five two were then all involved in this in this uh, pride tifo. So you had like there was a gay supporters organization was there. Everybody had these uh, rainbow armbands, which even Carlos Vela, the captain, wore. And they had a they had a tifo, LGBT tifo, which was of um, uh, I want to say Barry Brasaro, but that, he's the guy who killed Giordano. But um, uh, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> Freddie Mercury, Freddie Mercury Tifo, um, you know, with, with rainbow smoke. And you're just thinking, I mean, if you did that in Kiev, you'd be ripped to pieces, you know. And it was, yeah, and I've got to say, it was really, it was a really enjoyable day out. It was kind of. It seems, it seems you know, very refreshing, but you, you, I often wonder, you know, how, how does that compare to the, the ultra scene globally as well? Because I think in, certainly in Europe and South America, you know, often these clubs will meet. I suppose it's quite a comfortable situation for American ultras with a, a progressive left-wing way of thinking is that they would probably never come across people from Kiev. Definitely not. Well, maybe a, not. A, yeah, a I guess maybe, maybe some Balabaravas maybe in the kind of Concacaf Champions League. <laughs> but but there, yeah. I, I mean, what, I mean, I don't want to give away, I'm not give away the conclusion. It's quite obvious. I mean, look, look, look at what's happened to kind of the big fan cultures of, you know, like the Torcida in Brazil, the Barras Bravas in Argentina, hooligans in england and and the ultras in italy you know which now modern the modern ultras is kind of a mixture of all four of those really in many respects they're all highly influential um but you know police control has almost you know you've got these defeated banning orders in in italy um you've got how away fans are treated and and the gentrification of football in england you've got the kind of extreme policing of the stadiums in brazil and in argentina uh, you've got new technology like facial recognition technology, CCTV, high resolution CCTV. Um, you know, it's it's killing the scene. It's killing the scene as we know it. So, yeah. you know, a lot of the old school people I spoke to are like, you know, you can't really do it like we did because it just ruins your life. You know, you can't you can't do it. You can't really be an outlaw. You can't have anonymity. No face, no name. You can't have that anymore in this day and age. Um, and so I looked at I looked at places like America and Germany and Sweden and North Africa to a certain extent and Indonesia as like actually if you wanted to find where the future of ultra culture might be, then those are the places to look rather than rather than Italy or um, you know, anywhere yeah, else. As so, you say, these these people have faced years of oppression and, and at some point it eventually must grind you down. 
Yeah, it must do. And also, you can't, you know, th- these are young people and, you know, you make a decision and you get, you know, that's it. You know, you know, you've got a criminal record. And, yeah. you know, I guess that's part of the attraction as well because it's dangerous. But it's, it, you know, the fact is that it, it you know, they, they, it has been, there has been a successful crackdown on it, which has robbed Italian ultras, especially, of their lifeblood. Yeah, 100%. And I suppose, you know, being a West Ham fan uh, from England yourself, was was there ever any scope to look at the UK, or did you just think you know that that scene is not where it where it is at? You know the, the hooligan thing is of the past, and I suppose that the ultra thing is uh, almost minimal. But where where it does exist, it's in, in very early years. I suppose you've well, got like uh, Crystal Palace yeah. and Celtic would be the two obvious yeah. big teams. Celtic, Celtic was going to be like so. I, I was thinking how to end the book, and actually, I thought, I, but it was getting too long, so I decided against it, and I was running out of time. But one idea was, it looked like at one point West Ham were playing Lazio, and I meet Diabolic, the head of the Illidu Chibli, because the Illidu Chibli, which is now, he's obviously been assassinated for three months after we speak. Did you, did you, meet, did you meet with him, James, yeah? Yeah, yeah we, I met with him in um, in Rome. Um, How did and, you find that? Because anything that I've, without going off topic here or off, not off topic, but off what we were talking about on a tangent, is uh, anything that I've read, you know, obviously was very much associated with right-wing fascist ideals and it seemed like there was there was lots of criminal uh, links yeah. there. But is is death obviously the lot of special circumstances? And before the, the Lazio, you know the uh, the curva there, they obviously treated them as a hero. And you've seen the tifos uh, and the yeah. trips to them since. But it, it almost seems from the outside looking in, uh, there was a lot more than meets the eye. Yeah, I mean it was. I mean we it took months to, to sort it out, um, and. You know, what it was, what what kind of, I think, got me in, into that world a little bit was the idea that this was kind of an ethnography or like, you know, there was, it was more of an ethnography than it was an expose, you know. So sure. it was, I wanted to kind of actually tell the story of like, like how, how you came to be, like what, what, was the, what was the story behind why you started the group and how you took over, or started the group, took over the group effectively. Yeah. And so, um it took a while and we had to go through several uh, like layers of security and he made us wait for eight hours. He was, getting, he was seeing his lawyer because he'd be, I mean, he just come out of prison for two years for drug trafficking. So um, he obviously had many, many fingers in many different pies. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, as soon as he gets out the car, you know, everybody gives a straight arm Roman salute. You know, we, we sit down and it's next to a portrait of Mussolini. There's there's lots of Nazi era flags or kind of I should say Second World War uh, fascist era flags and it lots of you know like another world doesn't it you know and how how are these people living in that but it's like they're engulfed to a certain degree in a way you know Italy's a very very complex place and yeah. the remnants of fascism I mean the Mussolini kind of ideal of fascism. You know, this still has a really strong resonance to a lot of people. So when we see fascist iconography or, you know, uh, Celtic crosses where the, in the way they're now used in the modern way, like as a, as a, a symbol of white power. Yeah. Um, when you see those, you know, they, they're not so shocking in Rome. You know, you yeah. see you see it everywhere because it's still a accepted political position to take. Whereas in Britain... You are absolutely an extremist and outsider if you if that if you're involved in that. Um, 
but so yeah it's a weird thing that to us yes it does sound very extreme but to, it, it, i mean it does seem extreme to many italians as well but actually given the context of the far right in italy you know he was an another another part of that just another yeah. character that was part of that but when we sat down i remember we he sat down and it was oh yeah i bet you I bet you want to hear all about the violence you know and and i did want to hear about the violence but i did so i also was like well actually yeah well let's start with something else and i think that's one of the reasons why we ended up speaking for two hours he's very honest about his racism his anti-semitism um his homophobia um you know he had you know he was a fascist he was proud to be called a fascist and um yeah. and you know it was you can't i don't think you could do a book like this without getting to speak to him or telling his stories you know so it was um yeah, that, that, was, that, can, that, can been, that can have been long before he eventually, not eventually, before he got shot in, in Rome. It, couldn't it, was have about, it was about three months. And um, and as it turned out, I mean, I met Il Boccia as well, the guy who's the, the polar opposite of him as head of the Atalanta. Right? <laughs> Atalanta, yeah. Yeah, and so as it turned out, interviewing both of them, they both meet at the, you know, the both teams meet at the Italian Cup final, which both the men are banned from going, you know. And we yes. did get the optics go and watch it with, with Diabolic at that, the, at the Lazio kind of team hat but I thought I wanted a bit I, I covered so much of Italian football and I've not seen an Italian game because everybody's banned <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to, so I did go to the game in the end which is a shame because then yeah like, like I said three months later he was shot dead so um, yeah. you know so it was yeah I mean it just kind of brought home to you what intense world it can be you know if you just step out and you know step on the wrong side of it it also shows you the polar opposites as well. You know, you've got this guy who's been done with drug trafficking and he's often, you know, uh, he's labelled far right and he's proud to be a fascist, as he says, but you've also got, you know, your Atalanta cap at the other end who, who seems to be a hero in the village of Bergamo or the town of Bergamo yeah. where he's, you know, he's, he's, he's very much involved himself in community projects and he's very much far left-leaning, I would say. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I couldn't really pin him down as, as left-leaning, but he certainly, yeah. you know, it was a breath of fresh air meeting yeah. him he was he was just it was just like this is he is the platonic ideal of what a capo should be you know and of what ultras should be and what it can be to a city um which is this you know they're not these aren't wallflowers you know these guys are tough cookies and you know all the ultras I, the older ultras i spoke to would say you know bergamo was the toughest trip because you just turn up and there's all these vikings wanting to kill you <laughs> the vikings in the north of the country they've all got blonde hair and they're six foot tall yeah. Um, so yeah, they, but the, you know they had they have built this extremely strong and extremely versatile kind of support network for the homeless, for drug addicts, for people, for the down and outs, for the for the downtrodden in, in Bergamo. And um, I thought that was just it was just a wonderful story. And and the sad thing was that he's been banned from the stadiums now for twenty six years because he's seen as because he's still I mean he's a bit of a naughty lad you know I mean he still goes and he, he still wants to steal a flag or you know I mean you know they it's a scene that also has learned how to protect itself so of course it's not without its odd I was going to say tear up but I don't want to sound like Danny Dyer but you know uh, <laughs> you know has its own um has its own no, yeah, no, I understand. So, totally understand but it, it, it yeah with meeting him it was it was tragic because he can't go to the football match and it obviously was killing him that he couldn't go but then yeah. when I saw this story about the Bergamo uh, ultras have donated seventy five thousand euros of, of what they would have spent going to the going to the away game. I think to, against Valencia. Valencia, yeah. You know, like that's 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 what I saw, and it's tragic to see what's happening there with with 
with coronavirus because it's that's right in the epicenter and you know it was just a place i really fell in love with when i was there yeah oh, that's a beautiful city absolutely beautiful but uh yeah we, we we went off on a bit of a tangent there we were almost talking about you, you mentioned that Lazio were going to play west ham and you were thinking about covering uh, oh yeah the, so to speak yeah so it was yeah the the so i wanted the, the end of the book to be in england because essentially like our indigenous fan culture that the world still thinks exists is kind of gentrified out of existence and we've never had ultras and if people try to bring in ultras now because we're now consumers and not you know part of a community asset you know they're just shut down you wouldn't ever have this like if you opened a a flare in a british stadium i mean you'd you'd probably get five years in jail or something crazy like that you know so um, because it's been kind of like they've, they've thrown the baby out of the bath, that bathwater in kind of the early 90s, it means that there is no space for that kind of uh, level of activism, certainly in, in, at the top level of English football, unless you go down to the lower level. So I, was, I really wanted to go to see Clapton, because um, I know yeah. they have a really strong ultra scene there, very left-wing ultra scene, um, or uh, Lazio were playing West Ham. I know there's, you know, if you look at kind of, uh, the friendship between Lazio and West Ham fans, you know, a lot of the there's there was some talk of a kind of a Lazio type ultras group being set up at West Ham, but you know, connected to the far right because you see these football lads alliance and how football is, you know, in the, the same way that I saw how ultras groups were being co opted by uh, kind of ultra nationalist politicians in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and you know, they were using those guys like the engine of protest. I mean, they all shared the same views. You know, it was interesting that I'd see that some of the kind of anti-Islamic, far-right rhetoric, pro-Brexit rhetoric that you would, you know, you'd often see at these protests. And when I, when I started covering the English Defence League in 2010, 2011, you know, I'd go to many of their protests and it was amazing how, you know, the engine of those protests were, were ex-football hooligans singing football chants and yeah. giving it like, like a, a vibe at an away game. So I kind of wanted to bring that back and then maybe finish at Celtic, which does has actually built something kind of approximating a decent ultra scene and spent a bit of time with them. But it was it was it was just it was in the end, it was too long. I already had to drop a chapter on Romania and a full chapter on Poland. And so, yeah, we don't have an ultra culture and I don't think an ultra culture can exist in the current setup. But at the lower level, right down in the lower levels of the league, I think that's what and you see the same in Italy. And you see in other countries where the control has got too much is that they they will find a way at the level where there isn't the control. And that's where you're going to see a kind of flowering of fan culture, I think. Yeah, 100 percent. And I actually think Scotland almost, just from my experience, varies slightly to England as well. You've obviously got Celtic in a group at, at Rangers as well. And and most of the smaller teams, uh, I'm a mother fan, uh, as you probably know, um, we, we've got a kind of smaller kind of ultra influence group there as yeah, well. Yeah. And actually being fan owned, fan owned, of course, I'll give you fan owned now. Yeah, yeah. owned by the fans, yeah, majority shareholder of the Welsh Society. So in that aspect, you know, different to England as well, maybe because it's a a slightly lower level, less televised, uh, almost less fan. Almost seems like the seems allowed to flourish a bit more uh, in terms of Celtic and Rangers are both reasonably sized groups, and uh, as well seem to have groups there as well. Yeah, it seems like in, in England it's just too sanitised, isn't it? It is. I mean, I, you know, I, was, I did a story for NYT a few years ago about Hamilton. Um, 
which is, you know, which I found was an amazing little club, you know, that was, I think at the time they were top of the Premier League as well. They like, I think they spent like two weeks um, at the top of the table. Was, uh, not Martin Cannon, sorry. Uh, the manager before they went down to Norwich, uh, Alex Neal. Was, was yeah, Alex Neal, very yeah. impressive guy. You know, but the, you know, the club was involved in, they had a small ultras group. They were like, there was no debt. There was, you know, they, they did a lot of charity, especially working with addiction in the community. You know, it was, um, you know, I just thought you can't, you don't really have that in England. I mean, there's a couple of clubs lower down, like Exeter City, um, Portsmouth before they sold out, you know, to the, to Michael Eisner. You know, we, there's been a few, but like there seems to be more, like Scotland has, has realised that they, they, because of the power of Celtic and Rangers, they have to do it for themselves. And Yeah, um, I think you mentioned Hamilton there, obviously I'm a Motherwell fan and we, we're fan-owned and we, we do quite a lot of cross Lanarkshire as well. It's often the smaller clubs like, you know, your Hamilton's, Motherwell's, they don't get that documentation. I, mean, I think when people from out West Scotland think of Scottish football, they often think Celtic and Rangers and... Uh, they are some kind of global brand, so they, they, they maybe do some community work, but not in, not in the level in the community that, you know, the likes mm-hmm. of Hamilton and Muggle maybe do. And I think yeah. that's what makes these clubs special as well. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's, um, I mean, I want to spend more time. I mean, I'm, I'm coming to Scotland after this is finished. <laughs> I mean, so I, I'm definitely going to try and, um, I mean, after we talk about the smaller clubs, but I definitely want to, um, I would definitely want to see some ultra stuff in, in especially at Celtic. I definitely want to see some more, sort more, some more of that. Um, but I love, you know, I love where you see fans taking control of clubs and making them succeed. You know, because there's this almost belittling. Oh, what do they know about finance? What do they know about money? What do they know about the world? But actually, they often. It's like when you see like railway lines renationalised. You know, they suddenly start making a profit. It's like. <laughs> yeah. We can listen to the money men, but they've dragged this problem. So, you know, I'd, ra- I'd rather I'd rather trust the fans because one guy at Portsmouth told me, you know, look at the terrace. It, look, look, at this. it's just a massive uh, spectrum of talents. Like you'll have CEOs there, you'll have accountants there, you'll have, um, uh, uh, you know, truck drivers. You'll have everybody there, but everybody will have a talent they can bring into into the fan ownership and the idea that 100%. fans can do it. Hundred you know, percent. I think that's why it's almost flourishing at Motherwell. You know, like we. Uh, we are on big fans. You've, you've still got a, a board of directors there that are your stereotypical to a certain uh, businessmen. Uh, but when you look at the, you know, we've got thousands of members now and everyone's got their own talent and the, the options there for everyone to contribute, uh, not just financially, but also in their own way, you know. Yeah. It's a community-owned club and, and you want to use that community asset better. So I, it might be, a, might be a contrast for you, uh, James, writing about fan ownership rather than writing about, you know, the, the billionaires club. Uh, but it could be a could be a project that I'm, I'm landing on your desk. Well, I, think, I mean, I'd love to. I mean, that's that was the. I mean, that's the last chapter of the Billionaires Club was going to Portsmouth. Yeah. And so it was always like the plan was always to kind of bring that up as the look. Look at these. Look what they've done for football. But look what these guys can achieve if they put their mind to it. But then they got bought by Michael Eisner, so it then has a has a very negative kind of not negative, but it's like oh they did great. Oh, but they sold out like they like as soon as they had to sniff the Premier League again. Yeah. So, you know, it is, you know, that's the other thing you've got to work out as well is that, I mean, there is, a, there is probably a certain level that, um, that fan ownership can take you in terms of success. But I think 100%. why it's probably thriving in Scotland is that there's already a level that you can't get past and you can't get past the top two. So, 
it, once there's there's a psychological acceptance of that, then it makes it much easier to think, well, we're going to have a club for ourselves. And if we have any success, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's extra. But this is a community asset which we're going to protect and make it out of. Oh, 100%. And, and, and you're securing that longevity. The football club, you know, for me, it's, it's almost that, you know, we, we can dream about winning the league knowing that it probably might never happen. You might get the Scottish Cup or the League Cup now and again. But first and foremost, for I think for many fans in Scotland, the, the most important thing is knowing that in 10, 15, 20 years' time, you know, even 100 years' time, that your kids and your grandkids and the future generations are going to have the, the same joy watching that local team that you did. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So, James, right, uh, thanks so much for your time. It's been been brilliant talking to you, and uh, uh, I know that you're a, you're a busy man. It's almost quite a tough time for you just now being away from the family as well. So, just to round off, you know, thanks so much for your time. And where can, where can people get the book? Um, I mean, Amazon, you can find it on Amazon. Um, the, just the audio book was out uh, this week as well. So, which I read, which is the first time I've done that. Brilliant. Um, How was that? Was that all right? It was exhausting. Four days in the <laughs> studio where you're made to feel like the most stupid person on the planet because you're having to read back your words and then you notice a few typos in it. And then you've got like, there's about 25 different languages in it. And then so you're trying to like mangle. <laughs> French and then next it's, it's Brazilian Portuguese you know so it was <laughs> at That's times nice. I felt a little bit like you know Del Trotter trying to speak French you know, <laughs> on Wii, you know so it was uh yeah so it was it was good it was exhausting yeah but so you can get it on Amazon and uh, all good bookshops and you can find me on Twitter at James Piotr James P-I-O-T-R brilliant James thank you so much for your time if you've not picked up a copy of 1312 among the ultras uh, get it for one of those places that James mentioned. Uh, and thanks very much for listening. Cheers.